Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran, and we are here with History, Culture, Trauma. We are excited about this conversation today because it is extremely timely as we are back to school and children are back in America's school system. And when we think about all the things that are going on in the world, we have um, we still have lingering effects of COVID, which is the collective trauma. We still have um, the lingering effects of the racial reckoning that we have had as a country. And we definitely are still grappling with these larger existential threats like climate change and things of that nature. So it is of no um, surprise that stress in our school systems is extremely high. Um, We have plenty of news articles and research that shows that um, our children, our school-age children are dealing with um, mental health um, crisis. And um, this is reflecting in, um, you know, substance abuse and um, suicidality. And I would like to make it clear that this is um, Suicide Prevention Month. And um, and so our mental health crisis for our school-aged children is very clear. And so we want to tackle this topic today and explore what it looks like to heal and reduce stress in schools. And I'm joined again by my co-host, Matthew Portell. Hi, Matthew. How are you doing? I am. I am doing great, uh, Ingrid. I, I think it's important to let people know why I think I'm doing great. We at Paces uh, got to do a week retreat where we got together and got to know each other a little bit better. Many of us work remotely. Then we had a week of labor week. So Dr. Uh, Noise be prepared for us. I am very energetic. Um, because <laughs> we are coming off of a break. And as you probably already know, if you listen to this podcast, um, education is near and dear to my heart, and yeah. I'm deeply committed um, to this work, too. So we're really excited to have uh, Dr. Taisha Noyes. She has spent approximately 23 years supporting, nurturing, and creating success with underserved populations from coast to coast in both the nonprofit and educational settings. Dr. Noyes has exp- uh, expertise in special education, having served students representing at least 11 of the 13 federal categories of exceptionality as a teacher and administrator. She has extensive experience building systems uh, to support the best practices within schools. She has been a passionate coach of teachers and leaders in academic content, special education, athletics, and leadership. She's an equity warrior. We love that uh, here, especially for this podcast. Having led work at the district level with a focus of creating equity underserved student populations, specifically, and including raising graduation and college attendance rates, reducing suspensions and expulsions, creating community school connections, building capacity for culturally responsive teaching and leadership, and advancing anti-racism and anti-bias work. So welcome, Dr. Noyes. We are so glad to have you, and that, that your bio rang to our heart. But tell us a little bit more about you, if you will. One, now I understand why I'm so tired after you read that bio, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it, but at least I know it's good tired, right? I got something done while Absolutely. I was- Absolutely. Uh, You've been working hard, working hard. 
<laughs> in the field. Um, I am an LA native. I am a product of Los Angeles urban public schools. Um, I know people, you know, struggle. Like I've been in charter for the last ten years, um, ish. Um, but before that. I was in public school. I actually started teaching in New York City public schools. Um, I know people struggle with big districts, but I am a living witness that good things can come out of big urban districts. Um, I'm a living witness that a great education really can change a kid's life. Um, I think as the world has changed, right, that what students need from school now is different than what students needed from school when I was a little girl. Um, but also as an educator, looking back, there were a few things that could have enhanced that experience, right? Um, and for me, um, I'm the daughter of, of somebody who didn't get to finish high school, right? And so education for me means a lot of things. Um, but most of all, it is the thing that made my dreams come true. It's how I found out I wanted to be a teacher and educator. Um, great teachers helped me find my own talent, my own passion, my own voice. Um, and when I finished college, I knew I had to do that for other kids. Um, and so that's who you get. Yeah, that is awesome. Thanks for sharing, um, kind of your background and experience. I know that you are an advocate for trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive schools. And, um, I always like to ask people when they come on kind of, you know, when we think about the ACEs study, which is really kind of the cornerstone for much of this work in trauma-informed schools and trauma-sensitive schools. What was your, um, what? how did you feel? What was your takeaway the first time that you heard about the ACEs study? Um, if I could have turned backflips, I would have, um, because the ACEs study finally proved something I knew to be true probably a decade before that. Um, as I mentioned before, right, I thought I was going to law school when I first went to college. And so I was an urban studies major. And I remember um, my fascination was always with education as this, as the great equalizer. But when I looked at the data, the equality didn't seem to be coming out the way they had always promised. Uh, so when I came home, um, I'd gone to school in New York. I returned to Los Angeles. I knew I wanted to work with kids. And I actually, I, I should also mention, I came into education backwards, I like to say actually started in mental health. So I came out of college. I was like, I want to work with kids. So I started in a, what I thought was a regular after school program, but it was actually located in a mental health clinic for students that was doing intervention. At that time, LAUSD had realized that suspending small children, um, and back then, right, you could suspend or expel a student and they literally could just go to the next school down the block, um, that we had all of these kids going into middle school fully disrupted because they had been bounced from school to school. And so the district had decided that their option was going to be that parents whose children were up for expulsion could commit to services and treatment and stay in their schools and district or be expelled from the district. And I worked in the after school program that served that population of kids. Um, and I fell in love, right? I was, but there's something really sobering about walking in a room with a five or six-year-old who becomes so dysregulated that you need four adults to carry them out of a room. Um, when you meet a three-year-old who has trauma, right? You know, before becoming an educator, you think that 
life happens to people, but you think you're talking about adults. LA Child Guidance was my first confrontation with children being born into situations where trauma begins when they get home from the hospital and what that looks like when they are able to start walking and talking and expressing themselves. And so when I came across the ACES study, actually in early in in the 2000s while I was working on my dissertation, and I remember thinking, this is how it all fits together across the timeline. I had seen it in three-year-olds and five-year-olds and latency-age children, right? The truth is, I grew up with it with the adults in my household. Now I could see the entire life trajectory of how unhandled, unmanaged, unserved, unhealed trauma, right, stays with folks throughout their whole lives. Um, I was never a big fan of Freud. I grabbed a master's degree in there, in psychology in there somewhere because I was training people to work with kids, right? Um, and I was never really a big fan of Freud, but he actually does talk about like being stunted in your development, right? About the idea that you have a major traumatic experience, right? And if you don't address the trauma, if you don't heal, that you get stuck there. Um, unfortunately, in 2023, I now know I was raised by a person who's been stuck at their biggest point of trauma and what that does to your own life experience. I mean, you know, generally speaking, as regular educated, public school educated people go, I'm fairly successful, right? But I also realize in my own family, I can see, right? I can see it living. I can see the ACEs study living. I can see how um, somebody who didn't have a relationship with her own mother, didn't know her father, didn't really ever connect with school, felt like a loner, felt alone, made decisions, had their first kid at 15, right? And then doesn't, is not able to manage that because the family won't support them. So then they're just trying to survive and they never get past the shame, the fear, and all of the things that come with that. Then they have to raise humans and survive in a society, right? And then when I went into, well, I taught in New York City and I taught in the special education district. I know it's a whole thing. Um, in New York City, students who are classified as moderate and severe have their own schools and their own district. And I worked in a, in a district 75 school. So lots of students with emotional disturbance. And when I met them and I listened, their trauma started early. When I met their parents sitting in IEP meetings, um, you know, like I said, somewhere in there, I grabbed a master's degree. And so people seem to have this therapeutic idea when they walk in a room, they just sit down across and they just start talking. Doesn't matter what we came to meet about, people just start talking and they tell me things. And I just started to listen to students and families and the kind of trauma, the amount of trauma, the depth of trauma that families had experienced, right? Everything in school all of a sudden made sense to me when I saw the ACES study, because I was like, oh, all, all we're doing is seeing people play this process out. This is this unhealed trauma and it and it keeps cascading. And because schools are not prepared to deal well with traumatized people who are dysregulated because of their trauma, because of that lack of healing or the lack of opportunity to heal. Because I wanna, I, I definitely wanna deal with the idea that I don't blame people for their own pain. I'll, I'll never do it. And especially as an educator, right, as a, we should be paragons, right? And beacons of light in the community where we serve. And if we cannot do that because we don't see light in the people that we serve, we should not be there, right? And so for me, I think people that I've encountered who were dysregulated at that level, young people, little children. I met a little boy, I will never forget him. His name was Moises. 
the sweetest, he had the sweetest face you could ever imagine, these big brown eyes. And he always wore a hat, like a beanie. And I couldn't understand it because again, I'm from Southern California and it was hot and I, and I couldn't understand. And so finally, at some point, one of the therapists in our program says to me, well, he has, see if I can pronounce it right, it's like trichotillomania, right? Where he has no frustration tolerance. So he grabs his hair by the roots and yanks it out. <clears throat> when you have sat in a room with a three-year-old baby, who is so frustrated, so anxious, so scared that he has to hurt himself to express what's happening on the inside. You come to know that it can't be his fault. And so when you see adults, right, or, or older children or adults who are having the same experience, you begin to wonder, like, I'm not sure this can really be your fault either, right? Because what we're looking at, we know started much sooner than when we finally confronted. And I've, I'm continually fascinated at why schools are not better prepared, particularly when we are in communities where the opportunity for trauma is so much higher, right? The simple truth is, right, the less privileged you are, um, the less financially stable you are, the more likely you are to encounter possibly traumatizing experiences. We know that about people. But when I was last in New York, you were lucky if your school got a school psychologist. Like we used to put three or four schools in a building and you have one school psychologist, 4,000 kids in a building. And I think, I think Dr. Noyce too, that that really speaks to schools are part of the broken system, right? And I think we have to be able, so many times in this work, I've, I've encountered people who only want to look at trauma that happens outside of school. Right. And yes, we understand that that is also part of this brokenness of our system and this lack of an equitable, just society that we're all fighting towards. And given what what Ingrid said in the in the opening of we're, we're coming off of 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 a pandemic, we're, we're still in this midst of racial reckoning. Um, we have been for decades and centuries. What do you see? How do we re reduce the stress? Um, that's happening in schools, not just for the children, um, because I think you and I have a lot of the same uh, ideas, but also the adults. What does that look like? Now, see, Matt, now you're asking the big question, see, because I think I think we need to deconstruct our idea of what we think school is supposed to be and do anyway. I, I joked with somebody the other day. I was like, so my first question is, why is it when we talk about stress, right, and, and trying to retain teachers, right, because we're in the biggest teacher shortage we've ever been in, right, because of all the things you just mentioned, why don't we ever talk about class size, right, and then people make this face, right, and I know that the research says it's like, oh, well, it's mixed around class size, and it's like, you know, managing 18 kids feels completely different than managing 25 feels very, very different than managing 30 or 35. What? Now, right, and and then recognizing the weight, right? Because in a Title I school, for example, right, we know that more than 90% of the kids who walk through the door walk through the door weighted, right? This is not, we're not talking about middle-class America because that's a, that's a different setting, right? But if you've ever taught anything, right? If you taught a seminar at, in a room full of adults or if you taught second grade, you know that the number of people in a room shifts the energy in it. It shifts the demand on the human standing in the room, right? Even now, right? In, in my current role, I am, I get to be an equity warrior all day, every day. That's what I do. I serve um, 
schools within the LA region, right, regarding their issues and equity. And, and my boss and I, as 20-year veterans, right, sit down and think really strategically. How many people are in this room? Where do we want to put them? How do we want them seated? We, this is stuff we think about when we're dealing with well-educated adults who have been educated in education, right? And so how do we, how are we setting up schools still every day? And we don't think about that. We're not having a conversation post-COVID. How did we send kids back into the same size classrooms, right? With, with the same number of kids. Let's just start with that. We don't know what kind of trauma teachers suffered during COVID. We don't know what kind of loss children suffered. And then we put the same group of people back in the same room that wasn't working before COVID happened, right? Let's tell the truth. COVID didn't break the system. It broke it further, let's say that, right? Because it was already broken. But for me, like as a person who is fresh off of campus, I was a principal last school year, right? I'm fresh off of campus, right? Classrooms felt different. And I subbed a lot of classes. That's why I remember so vividly, right? Days where four or five kids are absent at a class of 25, that room feels completely different, right? Because the truth of the matter is that our trauma takes up space, right? It, as much as it is a part of us, we bring that energy with us, right? Whether it is positive or not so positive, we bring it with us. And so one, I think we need to first immediately start with, we need to have a conversation about the level of attention needed by children and what level of human capacity can actually manage that. I think asking teachers to manage the behavior, the social emotional needs of, and the academic growth of 25 or 30 or 35 kids. And in, in middle schools and high schools, we're talking about per class. So really we're talking about over hundred kids a day. I think we're being unfair. And the truth of it is, I just had this conversation with my boss. Um, he's an EDLD from Harvard. And he mentioned when he did comparative education in Switzerland and Italy, right? None of them have class sizes over 20, right? They're not having the same, I don't know that they're having the same trauma conversation in their classrooms that we're having right now. But we definitely know that their kids are scoring better academically than our kids are. Well, let's talk about that. Also, they don't, feed anybody garbage. That's a whole other thing, right? So I think we need to talk about all the things. One, we need to talk about what we feed kids on campus. Two, we need to talk about the provision of mental health for children and adults on campus. Right now, I work for the Los Angeles County of Education. One of the, the um, benefits they have provided in this new role for everybody in the organization, 1,500 person organization, we have a department called EASE. It is counselors who are on site all day, every day, available for who? For educators. And they are free. Wow. And so provision for the mental health needs of children and families, provision for the mental health needs of staff, including administration. If I mean now, now Ingrid, I don't know your background as much, but I do know Matt was a school administrator. And I've never had to break up a fight that I didn't walk away almost in tears from. Never. I've never had to peel children off of each other because they are so frustrated and they can find no other way to express themselves than to cause harm to one another and not felt something really uncomfortable on the inside. But in all my years in administration or on a school campus, there was never a space for me to go mm -hmm. off of some of that, right? I'm sitting in this chair today and not on a campus today because the work cost me my own health. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so it's not a recommendation like, you know, 
like I'm, I'm having a pie in the sky moment, it's because I've lived it. I've lived on a campus that is located between four sets of projects and wrapped around by 20 gangs. I have worked there. I have shown up in that neighborhood every day, seven years in a row and served its children and served its families. And it is weighted and it's hard. And then I have looked in the eyes of teachers who have 33, 34, 35 kids at a time in a classroom and not one of them without their own trauma. I remember when we first started the conversation about right, trauma-informed practice, right, in a professional learning setting. And I had a teacher. Okay, now I'm going to tell you guys the truth because she wasn't my favorite. So let me put that out there. Everybody's had this experience if you're an administrator, right? We're talking about just, and I think we're talking about something that I thought was simple, right? Greeting kids at the door and the tone that we use when we speak to kids, right? Speaking to them in an affirmative, you know, instead of the don't this, don't this, don't that, would you please, could you please, would you consider, right, cre- treating them like humans, right? And at the time I was at a high school. And so it's more like it's some, we have we expect our children to grow up. So we have to model with it for them, right? The kind of behavior that, that is expected of them. And I remember at some point in the middle of this meeting, teacher shoots her hand up and she's like, what about my trauma? <clears throat> And I remember myself, I promise you, there's five other administrators in the room and we're all looking at each other because none of us have an answer, right? Now, at the time, I thought she was being a little bit dramatic, right? But that was earlier in my career. It was before before the unexplained backaches and headaches and weight gain for me that came because I worked so much. The, one, when you work in that kind of environment, it's consuming, right? So all I could do was work. It was before, I don't know, three years without ever getting to eat lunch because there's always something, right? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's before, I, I don't know, if that was before the first time I had to get in the ambulance with a kid, you know, who got high on campus and had a full fit and kicked and screamed and yelled and hollered and cried. And I had to sit there and hold her hand and keep her calm while we waited for her parents, right? It was before those moments that she yelled that because had she yelled it afterwards, I might've stopped the whole meeting and sat down next to her, held her hand and cried and said, good question. Let's talk about her trauma. What do we do? We have a system that assumes somehow that adults can leave whatever's happening in their lives, whatever their pain, whatever their trauma is at the door, in the parking lot, in the car. And then they can come in and be these full, healthy humans, right, to shape full, healthy children. And it it's not true. And even if it were true, it's an unfair expectation. Yeah. I started to think about teachers like I think about parents, right, in loco parentis, right, is what they say in the books about educators, right? By high school, in, in the high school, I spent more time with the kids in my high school than their parents did. Right. And when I'm not healthy and when I'm not okay, right, kids can feel you. They can feel you. They sense you. They know it. But I'm not good for them when I'm not. And so we rushed people back in to schools after COVID. I didn't see a lot of districts offering additional mental health support for staff, administrators, teachers. Right. We just got extra for kids. Right. And then there's a bunch of intervention programs. I was just having some conversations with um, with our major district here um, in the city about the fact that they opened a bunch of positions that they can't fill. Yeah, I've always thought that when we think about trauma responsive schools or trauma informed schools, that they are for 
the staff and administrators um, because as adults come into the space, they are not able to be a space of calm for a child. Um, and so when we're when we have this discussion around trauma-informed schools, in my mind, it is for um, the adults in the space. And I came to, you know, definitely came to the the understanding that you're talking about. When I first started, I was very child-centric. I started in this work. I've I've worked in lots of different spaces. So juvenile justice, I've worked with uh, juvenile offenders. I've worked in school systems. I've worked with um, crisis counseling. And so when I first came into the work, I was very young, naive. I had a lot of passion for children. And then um, I came to the space where I began to feel kind of similar to you around parents. Like parents are getting a hard a hard run up here when they have their own trauma. And what does that mean? So this is where we get to the point where we begin to understand intergenerational and historical trauma and what that means for um, all systems, especially education. Uh, And so I definitely appreciate how we are being very clear and intentional and highlighting that this is about the adults in the space um, so that they can even do the work that they need to do so they can even have the space for themselves to be in the space to be healing for a child. Um, I think when we are looking at trauma-informed schools, um, I wanna go back to kind of what you had said before, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this after the break. Um, but when you talked about before, like we have to think about what is the real purpose of education. Um, and so, uh, and this is something, I'm, a, I'm also a psychology professor, and this is something that my students and I talk about a lot. Um, because we are definitely, um, you know, they're coming in young and naive at the beginning of their career. And I like to bust their bubbles as soon as possible. So, um, you know, why do we have public schools? Should we have public schools? Should public schools be mandatory to everyone, especially if they have a reputation of not serving everyone? Um, What are some alternatives? You know, just playing with the ideas. And so the question of what is the real purpose of education is extremely relevant because we want to think that the purpose of education is to enrich um, and and not so much to say, okay, now you're ready to work a job or you're ready to um, kind of be plugged into the system um, and uh, be a part of this, um, you know, machine. (laughs) Uh, You know, what does it mean to be enriched and what does it mean to live a full life? And is that going to college? Is that having a family? Is that, you know, what, you know, what is enrichment? And so I think that that's a very um, important question. What is the purpose of education? And then that will help us to think through what does it even mean to have trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed um, education when our goal is to warehouse, you know, as opposed to helping individuals reach their higher potential and enrichment. So I, that definitely um, struck home with me. Um, Matthew, I know that you were playing a little double dutch. I, did you, what were you thinking when you listened to Dr. Noyes' um, explanation around ACEs and how she came to this work? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a lot of thoughts and more affirmations. And if you could have, if you could have <laughs> seen me on the podcast, my neck is going to be sore from shaking my head. Yes, because I really go back to looking at the historical context of school as a system. And school in the way it was designed was only designed for a very small population, right? And if we look at it over time, we've tried to disrupt that, but we're still seeing the system that is really based off of what Dr. Noy said and data we all are aware of, it's still really only meeting the needs of a small population 
if we don't change what's happening, when we see these schools that are flourishing, to me, I found that they're breaking the mold of what traditional education is. When we see schools that are that are thriving in, in underserved areas or with kids who typically maybe uh, uh, that are in exceptional education, maybe traditionally struggle, began to grow. It's because we're doing it differently. And I think it comes down to that's just it. What we've done hasn't worked. So I think when we get back from the break, I think what I would love to dig into is really what are we going to do differently that we know and potentially we'll see outcomes that do work? Um, yeah. Because that's that's what I'm excited to hear about. Yeah, um, I really resonate with what you said about what we've done hasn't worked um, and that it was never meant to work. Um, when we think about historically, we see the landscape of America's education in kind of the space of we're number one. Um, but historically, we did not include people of color, we didn't include women and girls. Uh, and so we have to now look at when we bring in the collective, all of us, um, then we have a, a very clear difference in our outcomes. And we are no longer number one when it comes to educational outcomes in, in, in the world. And that is a reflection of first that we have, now we're just including data from everyone. And that data is clearly showing us that there has been impact because of the past and currently. Uh, and that impact is overwhelmingly impacting people of color. It's impacting girls. Um, and even now we have a lot of information about the stress that teenage girls are experiencing um, and what that looks like. And ultimately we have to admit that our school system is a microcosm of our society. And in our society, only certain groups are allowed to thrive. Only certain groups are allowed to meet their fullest potential. And others have to deal with the system that is meant to and has always been there to prevent prosperity for certain groups um, to have second class citizenship through this educational process. And so I'm excited to talk about um, what's next for trauma-informed schools, trauma-sensitive schools, and also what's next for you, Dr. Noy. So let's take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. And we are back with Dr. Taisha Noyes. Um, thank you for joining us here at History, Culture, Trauma. We're going to jump back into our conversation focusing on how we can really reduce stress in schools. And um, as we move back into this conversation, especially after um, you know the first half where we really outline what the issues in schools are, now we wanna move into what does it look like to move forward 
with um, incorporating trauma-informed practices, um, having more trauma-responsive schools, what are the solutions? And um, and also, you know, Dr. Noah, what, what does the future look like for you as well? When I think about where we are now, um, I actually just had the privilege of having some conversations with my colleagues uh, who do this work through the counseling lens. Um, and what she reminded me of is like is about the idea of moving from a trauma-informed practice to a healing-centered practice. Um, and from the administrative lens, my first thought is, is administrators have to get healthy and build lives so they can bring their best selves to work. And I know that sounds trite, um, but it is not. And I want to give you a living example. Um, when I first started in high school administration, sorry, I talk with my hands. Is that okay? Does that get us in trouble on a podcast? Um, <laughs> um, I I really do just genuinely love people and I love teachers um, and I love what, when education done well, I love what it provides. And when I first became an administrator, I had the privilege of being invited into the most broken, for lack of better terminology, most broken, um, most frustrated um, um, school in the in the um, charter management organization that I worked in. I was a new AP. My principal was new, and they had had lots of tumult and frustration, and nothing about the culture was good at that time. And I remember when we sat down and said, how do we fix it, right? That's that's the job of us educators, right? We're always fixing things. And, you know, you go through all the things that you know from the books, but the truth of the matter is that nothing in any of my admin programs talk to me about, about what it really takes to shift culture when it's been steeped in trauma. Um, because that's not the same as a bunch of political arguments, right? Political arguments and... And small slights are one thing, but steeped in trauma is something else. And the only conclusion my boss and I um, and my colleagues could come to is we have to love them and we have to listen. And we need to treat teachers with the same kindness, with the same gentleness, with the same thoughtfulness, with the same consideration that we want them to treat kids. We must, if we can't do anything else, model for them what we want for kids. And it started with simple things, right? So we used to have a weekly um, office hours, we called it. The principal himself, myself as an AP, my other AP, we come and sit in the room, door wide open for an hour, an hour and a half every week, and just let people walk in and say what they needed to say. Because sometimes it can't be said, right, in the staff meeting. And, and sometimes, you know, sitting in a, when you ask for, you request a formal meeting, right? It it feels a certain way. It feels weighted a certain way. Um but we used to just sit and teachers would pop by, you know, and plop down and share, you know, and then it got more interesting when we had snacks because that always adds a, a layer of calm, right, and relaxed when you can break bread and talk. Um, but we started first and foremost with just listening. What do you want? What do you need? What is your vision for your classroom and for the kids who you serve every day? And how do we help serve the vision you have for your classroom? One. Two, as an assistant principal and then later as principal in my office, which I know people are, anyway, I always have a living room in my office <clears throat> and people are like, what? And I'm like, in every office I've ever had, there's a whole setup, couch, coffee table, flowers, snacks, the whole thing. And I could be in getting ready to suspend the kid 
and still bring their parents into the living room. And somebody asked me once, they said, parents walk in on 10 and they walk out holding your arm and smiling and you suspended their kid. Like there was discipline involved. How did you do that? And I was like, well, first and foremost, like we're on the same team. And everything that I do when a parent walks through the door and a family walks through the door has to demonstrate that we are on the same side. Because if we are not, this kid can't win. Kids can't win in a system when teachers, when educators and parents are on opposite sides, right? For me, that's as fundamental to healing as it is for academic growth, right? Those things go hand in hand, right? When we look at Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy starts with basic human stuff, right? Safety, security, food, shelter, clothing, safety, and security. When we can give those things to parents, when we can give them to students, when we can give those things to teachers, everybody functions better right? Because four is esteem, right? Well-esteemed teachers teach better. They relate better to kids. They relate better to everybody, right? But we have to make sure those things are taken care of. And so in my office, there is a living room. It is a space where when kids have done some of the worst things they think they could ever have done on a campus, that's where I sit them. Come. And then I, I offer them the couch and they look and they go, I can sit there. Yes, you can sit there. And then I just sit back and I wait. And they go, and I, I've watched kids, right, process me. They're staring at me across the room like, aren't you going to yell, scream something? No, I'm not going to do any of that. When you're ready to talk, you can tell me what happened. When teachers, right, come in, and I used to tell teachers, and I, I advise this of all administrators, if you have capacity, I say, I am here for you, right? Yes, I'm the administrator. That's cool. That's a role. It is not my only role. I am also your advocate and your support and your coach. And I can't do any of those things well if we're not honest with each other. So when you knock on this door, my first office was 125. When you knock on the door of 125, tell me what hat you need me to wear. Do you need an administrator because there's a chronic issue with the kid? Do you need a coach because you need somebody to help you walk through this lesson and figure it out? Do you need a human because your mother had a stroke last week and you're off your game and you know it? And you have no idea how you're how you're going to get this fixed. I had a I'll never forget having a conversation um, with some of my colleagues who were very, you know, rule bound. And I had a teacher who was frequently late and they were just so very frustrated by this idea. And so when I called the teacher and I said, hey, can you talk to me? I keep hearing right that we're having some tardiness issues. Can you talk to me? And she looked at me. And she was like, well, you don't know. And I was like, is, is there something I'm supposed to know? And she looked at me and she said, I'm raising a teenager and my mother has Parkinson's. I took a deep breath. I leaned back in a chair and I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. How can I help you? I was like, I'm not going to have a conversation with you about this contract. I'm not going to have a conversation with you about tardiness and minutes. And, like, I'm not going to do any of that. Here's the deal. Tell me what you need. Then I also find out that she's commuting from almost an hour away. So we made an arrangement where I could make sure what needed to be covered was taken care of, but the human was not every day worried about time and worried about what I thought about it. And it released a certain amount of pressure from her functioning, right? Her teaching was better because of it. I know that because we are now friends and we can talk about it, right? She was like, I, you don't understand what it meant for me to know that that wasn't what you were worried about. Because here's the thing, she's one of the best teachers in my building, but life was happening. Losing a parent is traumatic, right? And then to lose them slowly to something like Parkinson's, where you have to watch this decline happen. This is the person who I also need to teach 150 kids in my school. 
If I want something great for them, then she's got to feel safe. She's got to feel valued and she's got to feel listened to every time she walks in a room with me. And I don't always have to agree, but I do have to listen. And then I have to find out how to serve this human. How do I bring healing to this human? How do I know when it doesn't work? Same teacher, because we are still friends. Just lost her father in February. The first day she got back to work, she said her new supervisor walked up to her and said, hey, your grade books are behind. She said, yes, I do know that. I apologize. I just got back. I need a planning day. Administrator responds, no, I can't give you that. And she says, well, you know, I just lost my father. We just finished dealing with all that. And the administrator's response is, well, everybody's going through something. Just a little while later, she called and asked me for letters of recommendation. Shortly after that, she started interviewing. Now she currently has a new job. Why? Because her humanity was denied. She actually, some other folks who still work in that site shared with me, there was a conversation between that teacher and another colleague. And she was like, I never had these problems when noise was with me. And they were like, and somebody said to her, she was like, well, noise spoiled you. And I laughed because I kind of like to spoil people, right? I, I love my teachers. I wanted to treat them like family. So I did as much as I could. And so she was like, she didn't spoil me. She treated me like an adult. The truth of the matter is, is that nobody can put down who they are outside. So why don't we make room for their entire humanity in schools? Why are we still in a situation where we don't offer part-time teaching assignments? Assignments that can be shared. So when we have, teaching is very woman heavy, right? So if we know that we're going to hire new teachers, they're going to get married, they're going to have kids, for example, and with the with the advent of the opportunity for paternity leave, we've got young folks coming into education, we have nothing set up for them to safely want to take time off of their families or to work on a, a reduced or an adjusted schedule, that reduces stress. If I can be home all morning with my kid, hand them off to my spouse and then go to work, it reduces a great amount of stress if my home is taken care of as the adult, as the administrator in the building and as the teacher in the building. Why are we not talking about shared jobs in administration? We co-principal, but when have you ever seen a, a, an AP who could do three quarters of time or four days a week? How are we going to flex what we have? so that humans can take good care of themselves so they can take good care of children. I mean, Matt's been through this. As a, as a first year principal, I think I averaged something like 15 hours a day. It is unsustainable. Now I have the privilege of, of being very single and very free and I'm, I happen to be child-free, right? And I could pull that off, but I had to give away my dog. I got a dog during COVID because one of my old teachers used to uh, rescue pets, right? And God, he was cute. Magic was the cutest thing ever. And so for a year, I was home with him. When I took the new position post-COVID, I was never home and he was miserable. I had to give my puppy away, my own joy from my own personal life. I had to give it away in order to manage the job. But how does that work for anybody? Because if I'm more stressed, if I can't ever get home, if I can't eat during the day, if I, how am I supposed to make good decisions for two or three or four or 500 or a thousand kids if I can't even find the time in a day to take care of myself? I, I'm a fan of charter schools. I'm a fan of public schools. My sister teach, is an administrator in a full-size Texas public school that's very successful. 
but they have the best work-life balance of anybody I've ever seen and a 95% graduation rate. And so I think we're talking about all of the structures. One, how we build the jobs. Principalship has to change. It cannot be all things to all men because you can't be good at any of them. Principalship has to, literally the creation of the job, what it's comprised of has to change. Charters, because they are always trying to do it different, have to be funded better. I sat and had to make decisions about what happened in my classrooms based on lawsuits I had when I sit in one of the biggest districts in the nation that has an entire legal department. Why am I paying for legal fees out of this situation when I should be able to dish those to the district? Because the kids all still belong to the district, even if the school doesn't, right? The the, the kids belong to the district. That is their families, their community, their money, right? And so when I think about all the things that we can do different. One, the jobs need to change. We need to create flexible scheduling for educators, administrators, teachers, for everybody. Class sizes, I still think, need to be smaller. We need to reduce literally the amount of stress and trauma that can be seated in one room in any one place in a school at a time. Three, we need to increase the opportunity for mental health professionals and partnerships with mental health professionals, right? We need to teach administrators how to take good care of themselves and model for them how to build those practices into how they train teachers. We probably need to look at the schedule of school. I I mean, I think that being out of school for the summer works for affluent children. I don't know that it works for anybody else. Yeah. We had a school schedule where you were on for eight to 10 weeks and then off for two or three. Everybody wouldn't be burned and running from each other in June if you were off every 10 weeks and we paid you to come to work and plan instead of expecting you to hold your child, one of your children or more at home while you try to write lesson plans and grade papers. What if we built a work day for educators that actually makes sense and doesn't assume that they're going to do more, at least half of their work at home during hours we don't pay for? Those are the things I, I first think about trauma sensitivity, because if we can de-stress the humans, all of the stress yes. comes down. This right? is an example of what I was saying before about how our schools are a microcosm of our society. And that lack of humanity that is present in schools um, is present in our larger society. And and that's the real issue that we want to address when we say trauma-informed practices or trauma-responsive procedures and practices. We have to be very clear that we're saying that we should treat people like people who have human bodies and have human needs and wants and desires outside of work, outside of labor, even outside of education in order for them to be a full person so that then you can raise children in an environment where they can become full people as well. So this conversation is really resonating with me. Also, particularly as administrators, we have to be open to all the ways healing and trauma sensitivity can look. I know that we want high test scores and high grades and lots of content and all of that, right? But we know that traumatized children, especially children who are living in communities that aren't particularly safe, for example, right? How do we teach teachers who teach in those contexts, right? Then in your, whatever the first class is of the day, right? To start that day with grounding or yoga or meditative breathing so that kids can actually calm down and then access the parts of their brain necessary for critical thinking. 
because we keep running into this idea that in underserved communities, it's the teaching. And I don't know that that's true. I've been in some schools in some really rough neighborhoods with some of the best teachers I have ever seen. But if kids can't fully take it in because their effective filter is too high, right? If I have to run by gangs in empty lots, if I used to work in a high school where I remember having kids tell us, oh, I missed school because so-and-so was sick. And whoever so-and-so was, wasn't necessarily a sibling. And they were like, well, I, I I don't walk from the projects by myself. We have to walk together. And so their little sister was sick. They had to stay home so I couldn't come because their parents don't have a vehicle, right? That That's that child's every day that I can't walk safely through my own community. So how do I walk into a room with you and all of a sudden at the door, I'm supposed to shed the anxiety and the fear and the trepidation that comes with just trying to survive my way to school as a child. And this kind of toxic stress I'm living in, 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 in my form with a forming brain, right? My brain is still growing while this is happening, right? We're not talking about adults with fully formers. We're talking about children, right? And then, and then we want to talk about test scores. Why, why? Well, we changed the curriculum and we changed this and we changed that, but we have not changed environment. We have not changed the way that we invite kids into space, that we invite them into learning. We've not changed the way, we don't change the way we invite teachers to school. What if the school day started with 30 minutes of prep for, the, for everybody and kids got to play? What an idea, why not? Because extra test prep and extra classes doesn't cut it. I've seen it. That, because if I can't access the parts of my brain necessary for critical thinking, you can give me all the classes in the world. You know, it's interesting. Make me hate school. Say it again. What you what you just said is so true. And the school that I was in when I started was an extended day school. So we based off of a lawsuit, actually a federal lawsuit against the school district that I was in. Um, uh, the result was in a good faith that they would extend the school day for a certain group of schools um, that had uh, students that were underserved as well as smaller class sizes. Well, as you can imagine, by the time I, that was in 1995, by the time I came in 2015, some of those good faith became um, muddled. Uh, and by the time that I met my third or fourth year, they began to pull those away, right? When we had that 45 minutes, we did exactly what you said. We did clubs. We had self-selected clubs where kids got to join and it was cross grade level. So you could have a first grader with a fourth grader and they joined things that they love ran by the teachers running clubs that they loved. So everybody that was joining was happy to be there and was, was engaging and people were like, well, what academic standards did you meet? And I'm like, none, this was just fun. Right. And something else that you said that really resonated with me. And I, I, I believe this wholeheartedly that the, what we're doing and looking at charter in public is we're giving we're giving innovation space for our charter schools to say, figure something new out. Here's the thing I think was interesting. When I started to work at my school, I didn't ask for permission. And we did those things that we knew we needed to do without asking to do it. We need to give some of that leeway to public schools to say, try it. Let's figure it out, right? Let's not have to have a whole different school system to to be innovative. Let's all be innovative. And, you know, we tried some things that failed miserably. One, we cohorted students. 
and we kept them in a cohort and we moved them to the next grade with a new teacher. Guess what? Not a good idea because they had their own social, they had their own social network there. They knew everybody and everybody knew what was happening. And then we threw an adult in there and it was like throwing in a virus. And they were like the, um, uh, they, they were like the cure. It was like, mm, we don't want to do this. Right. But it's, this is part of innovation. It, it's, it's about, we have to think differently. We have to do differently. And I think one other thing you said is we've dehumanized in so many level levels, uh, of just people in general in our society. And, and thanks to Ingrid, I was turned on to the work of, uh, Tima Okun, which talks about the white supremacy and how it permeates the workforce. Right. And as I learned about her work and this depth of the supremacy that exists, I thought, oh my goodness, our schools are literally mirrors of this idea of productivity, 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 deadlines, all of these things that she points out. This goes back to the depths of supremacy in our society. You are 100% right. We're asking adults, administrators, even district officials, teachers, paraprofessionals, cafeteria staff, custodians, bus drivers, everyone to do a task that truly does feel unobtainable in a lot of spaces because we can become the scapegoat for what's wrong as opposed to actually looking at the brokenness of the system of what's created what is wrong. And I think that's where the equity piece in me continues to fight of Yes, this is an education issue for sure. We have a dysfunctional education system, but we also have dysfunctional um, societal norms that have been perpetuated for decades and centuries, especially in communities of color and against students who have disabilities. My aunt that I never met was institutionalized as a child because she had a severe disability. She was never educated, right? So we have progress, I would say, but it's on the minimal level. So I, everything that you said, I'm over here just shaking my head. I also want to say as an admin, one thing I did well and I modeled was there is no badge of honor. If you are in the parking lot at 7:30 at night, um, my car will not be there. And guess what? I've never left work that wasn't there when I got back. It's always there. I can never get it done. So you know what? I'm going home to my family. I have a son myself. He needs a father. He needs to be present. Um, I, I think if if we all give each other leeway and say, you know what? We can move these. We can, we can do this. Um, working at Paces has exposed me to this where, wow. I mean, we don't like things can actually be done at a pace that makes sense. Um, but boy, do we have a lot to do. So in, in dream world, you just said a lot. If you could wave a wand, right, and say, I would change this one thing tomorrow um, for your district, for your schools that you worked in, what would it be? You said so much, and I want to pull on, like, the white supremacy thread. Yeah, right? Please, please. And you don't have to answer the question. Say whatever you would like. In that productivity piece, right? Like, if I could wave the wand, right? One, I'd remove the thread, right? Um, we are, I'm in California. And so universal TK, right, is now required. And I've had the privilege of being confronted 
right, with um, early educators who think so differently about what education is supposed to be for children. Their frameworks are completely different than grade school. And I had, and, and I admit my own ignorance, I had no idea. I understood good education for me, right? I look at it from a humanistic, a, a human development lens, right? And it didn't occur to me that my mismatch to the system I work in now is they want to talk about productivity and 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 grades, and I want to talk about humans and human development. If I could wave the magic wand, I would adopt like pre-K two standards and stretch them all the way through. How do we teach teachers to help kids play and learn? How do we build school days that are um, developmentally responsive and supportive, right? If kids only, you know, the average person only has a 15 minute, right, span of attention. How do we create systems? How do we create breaks? How do, how do we re-envision school to be the same kind of place of joy and exploration and connection and development that preschools have learned how to do, but somehow we lose as our kids get older? Um, I, I um, just spoke at the Early Learners Institute and the their, they, their room vibrates with the lightness and the joy that I promise I have never experienced in secondary ed ever. So if that was my wand right now, it would be that, that that same lightness and joy that they see when they look at kids, that we could pull it all the way through the system and figure out how to let that be how we function with kids. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think this is the perfect time to, to bring this episode to a close. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us, for um, being open and, and really giving our audience, um, some some feedback and so that they can have a clear understanding of what it really means to have a trauma responsive school. I think sometimes when we use this language, we tend to, um, you know, people tend to think of it as, oh, we're going to focus on, you know, trauma. And but it really is about, like you said, healing centered that we need to be aware and responsive to trauma so that we can move towards healing and we also need to, again, understand that our schools are a microcosm of our larger society. And we have a really um, clear messaging around productivity and standardization that is denying the humanity of our children. Uh, and as long as we continue down this road, then we will continue to have the mental health issues that we have in our, in our society. They will continue to be uh, more prominent in our children. And, um, and, you know, the real cost to that is that we will have a society that really believes that we have to deny our humanity to get ahead or to be successful. Uh, and that's the real cost. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our audience for listening with us today. Thank you so much for joining us at History, Culture, Trauma. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.